All right, page 49 is where we are today. We've been talking about the church. We've been in a study of ecclesiology. And um, last week, there was operator error with the recording, and so that did not get recorded. Um, But we focused on the difference between the universal church and the local church last week. Who can tell me the difference between the local church and the universal church? Who remembers? What is the universal church? Or invisible church? Very good, Joe. All believers around the world. And why why is that called the invisible church? Because they have the power of invisibility? No. Come on now. Why why do we refer to them as the invisible church? Okay. Can you get them all in one room? No. Could we, as imperfect creatures, go around and say for sure, everybody in or out, in or out? No. Okay. We can't. Um, So that's why they're called the invisible church. And it's not just saints who are on earth, but also saints who are in heaven make up the invisible church. Okay, So those are some reasons why it's called the invisible church or universal church. It's not just saints who are alive today, but those believers who have gone before us. Now, by contrast, what is the local church? Okay, yeah, there you go. All the believers in one spot who have come together to fellowship together, to commit not only to the Lord together, but to commit to one another together. And so what we're doing right now is gathering as an expression of the local church. Okay, that's what we're doing. And so today, as we look at page 49, we get into page 49, we're going to be talking more about the local church and the qualities that make up the local church. And uh, we'll pursue a good definition there, okay? Very well. Well, How about I pray, and then we will uh, get into some new content. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've made and this opportunity that we have to be together. Help us today to serve you well, to honor you from the heart, and to grow in our understanding of your word, your purposes, your plan that you've revealed to us in the Bible. God, we depend on you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a story I didn't get to last week is a story from... Uh, this book, A Theology of Biblical Counseling. And um, it's a good book. It's written by a biblical counselor who's also a a good theologian. And he walks through the different areas of theology that we've been studying, uh, talking about the nature of God, the nature of Christ, the nature of the Spirit, the nature of the Bible, all of that stuff that we've been doing. But he does so from an angle of counseling and how all of this knowledge pertains to the real world. Perhaps something that you've wondered from time to time sitting in this class. (laughs) It's like, okay, this is great, but, you know, how does that affect me? Well, when it comes to our theology of the church and understanding the nature of the church, this should be very deeply applicable. Here you are today, gathered together in a church service. And so this touches your life presently, doesn't it? Well, I want to share with you a story from this book as he has walked through some theology about the church, and now he's going to bring in some counseling application. And think about the, uh, the way that the church plays a role in our lives. He uh, is describing this guy that he's dubbed as Randy. He uses fake names throughout the, the whole thing. But um, I'm going to read to you a significant chunk here, so it's like story time, all right? Uh, don't let your mind drift too much. I think it's a very compelling story, so try to focus and think about how our understanding of the church affects our day-to-day lives, okay? Oh, by the way, I should mention, uh, this guy, Randy, um, the counseling issue he had was an extreme addiction to pornography. That's the context here, okay? Because that'll come up. The church has people who are not called to be elders, yet they have a role to play in the counseling process. In fact, most of the people in our local churches are members who are not called to the roles of leadership and authoritative teaching. The flock has a significant role in ministry to people like Randy as well. Here I will examine four crucial ways that the church came together to help Randy. First, the church created a context for Randy to worship. In our counseling together, I spent a lot of time with Randy, showing him how to worship on his own and even how to live his life as a form of worship, Romans 12.1. 
As crucial as it is to think of worship in this way, it is also deeply comforting to engage in corporate worship with other believers. It is a powerful experience to share in the singing, preaching, and ordinances that happen on Sunday with other believers. This is a normal means of grace that all Christians need, Randy included. Second, the church provided fellowship for Randy. One of the reasons that Randy's sin struggle was so significant was because he had isolated himself from the body of believers. Randy needed to re-engage with other Christians. That engagement did not need to constitute anything special, like some sort of support group or gathering that focused uniquely on Randy. Randy just needed to be with other believers. This was accomplished as Randy attended regular worship. He got connected with a fellowship group in our church. Involvement in this group had Randy meeting with other believers at least once a week, studying the Bible and praying. Involvement in this group also had Randy spending fun time and growing friendships, attending cookouts, hiking, going to the beach, and talking to, into the night over coffee about everything from Jesus to football. Third, members of our church taught Randy in the context of counseling. Randy had a severe problem with pornography. A problem with his level of difficulty required a lot of counseling att attention. In fact, it was more attention than I could give by myself, as I had many other responsibilities in our church. I was able to connect Randy with several people in our church to meet with him regularly about numerous issues, including helping him with his use of time, helping him to know how to pray, working on budgeting priorities, and several other things. Each of these issues was important, but they were more than I could deal with on my own because of time constraints. At one point in the early stages of counseling, Randy was having four different counseling appointments a week with four different people in order to deal with urgent issues in his life. Finally, the church was able to provide accountability for Randy. I have been emphasizing that Randy's problem with pornography was severe. In fact, it was so severe that it required a great deal of oversight in his life to help him to turn the corner. Randy had grown accustomed to viewing pornography whenever he wanted. The path toward pornography in his life was one that was well-worn. It was going to take intense effort for Randy to learn to walk new paths. In order to succeed in this effort, Randy needed oversight. Everyone involved in Randy's care, including Randy, came to the conclusion that he would never be able to succeed without someone living with him to hold him accountable. Randy received that accountability for a time after a member of our church moved in with him as his roommate. Okay, now listen to this, last paragraph. The church held Randy accountable despite his significant season of failure partway through his counseling. Randy returned to pornography, began avoiding those who were trying to help him, and ultimately quit coming to counseling for a time. In response to this long season of persistent sin, and after much pleading for restoration from his brothers and sisters in Christ, the church publicly removed Randy as a member, Matthew 18. This process was deeply painful for Randy and for the rest of the church who loved him a great deal. Randy now says that it was facing the consequences from people he knew loved him that caused him to understand how serious was his need for genuine repentance. Shortly after being disciplined from membership, Randy began a process of repentance. A little less than a year later, he was restored as a member with many happy tears. Randy is now a growing member of the church. He has the ministry of the church to thank for it. Okay. So, when it comes to the church and understanding the role of the church in our lives, that's pretty significant, isn't it? That's deeply significant that the church has that kind of role to play, especially whenever we are in persistent sin and we can't fight it on our own. How, how good are you at uh, changing habits and things like that all on your own? Not very good, right? None of us is very good with that. So, um, as we start thinking more about the local church here this morning, with all that in mind, let me ask you this. Which qualities do a local group of believers need to possess in order to be accurately classified as a church? There's something you can start thinking about. Because as we're talking about the local church, and we've said, okay, it's local believers gathered together. They're in one geographical area. We can see them. We, we know their names. They're either here, they're not here, etc., that doesn't mean that every gathering of Christians constitutes a church. Okay? You could have two believers out to lunch because they're friends and they're just having lunch together, and that's not a church, right? I think we could all agree with that. Now, let's start putting some more detail to it, though. How or what do you need to have going on to be rightly considered a church? So let's look at some options. Here are four options, and then there will be a fifth after this. But one option is this. A church is a diverse society emphasizing that they have one faith, 
They see that the sacraments given by the church are a means of holiness, and they are governed by the Pope. Is that what a true church is? Now, that's a definition that's out there, and you should probably know whose definition that is by reading that. Okay, that's one definition. Let's give another one. A local church is faithful people come together for preaching, for sacraments, and they are under the king or the queen of England. No, that's the Anglican church. All right. The church is the elect, those who are chosen by God for salvation, who come together for the preaching of God's word, to take the sacraments, to be under church government and receive discipline if necessary. That seems a little bit closer, right? The church is the elect, coming together to worship God, to exercise love, and to obey the Great Commission. There's another definition. Well, here's where all those come from. You, of course, have the Roman Catholic definition and the Anglican definition. Then you have the Reformed view that John Calvin really led in defining there. And then John Frame, his systematic theology, that's how he defines it. Here's some more. Mark Dever wrote a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, and he gave nine qualities that a church has to have going on if they're at least going to be considered a healthy church. Mark number one, they have expository preaching, which is verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible. Number two, biblical theology, what we're doing right now, talking about what the Bible has revealed about things. The gospel, they must get the gospel right. I know he wasn't like putting it third because it's like the third most important. I know he would say that's the most important. That's just the order, okay? Number four, a biblical understanding of conversion, what it really means to be saved. A biblical understanding of evangelism. A biblical understanding of church membership. Biblical church discipline. Concern for discipleship and growth. And finally, biblical church leadership. So those are the nine marks that he gives for what a healthy church is. So now you've seen some definitions here. What are you thinking? What qualities should a church have going on to be rightly labeled a church? Good. Yeah, fellowship is extremely important. And if you look at your sheet, you're going to have a lot of the answers. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Well, I want you to start thinking this way, all right? The, the lack of response here indicates to me that maybe you haven't thought down this road too much. It's very important because you'll have some people get together and say that they're a church when, biblically speaking, well, no, they're not. They're just people getting together. You'll have some people that say, well, my church is when I go out into the woods. You heard people say this. I go camping on the weekend, and that's my church. Well, not according to the Bible. The Bible doesn't talk about camping on the weekends as church. The Bible talks about other stuff. All right, so that's what we want to do is we want to start exploring some of the possibilities. The local church exists for a variety of reasons, and it may be impossible to create an accurate, comprehensive list of them. That said, there are some attributes that a church must possess in order to rightly be classified as a church. Okay? So there are lots of things out there that are called a church, but we want to see what the Bible teaches us about how we can rightly classify a church a church. So the marks of a local church include, but are not limited to, these things that I have on your sheet that we're about to go through for the next couple of weeks. Fellowship and ordinances, I like that word better than sacraments. It's the baptism, uh, believer's baptism in the Lord's table. The word of God being taught and preached, prayer, service, equipping, and self-governance. And once upon a time, this was a few years ago, I made a chart that tried to, I don't know, conceptualize this a little bit. When we think about what a church is, You've basically got the essentials that Scripture gives us, and that's the stuff I was just talking about. You've got the essentials. And then you have all this other stuff, starting with a building. Do you have to have a building to be a local church? No. If you did, then the early church was not a church. What you read about in the book of Acts was not a church. You don't have to have an address to be a church. Yet how many of us perhaps start there in our minds and think, well, what's a church? Well, it's a place you go on Sundays. It's a building. It's an address. It's got a parking lot, etc. Well, no, that's not exactly it. Uh, you think about all these other things. You've got constitution and bylaws, a budget, insurance that you have to have for the building. Having a building makes things infinitely more complicated. It's very convenient. It's very complicated. Uh, programs, a name. Can, can you be a church if you don't have a name? 
Yes, you can, right? Um, we have in the book of Acts the, some names that were given to those early believers, like the way, or they were called Christians. They were first called Christians in Antioch. But you don't have to have a name for your church. You don't have to be registered as a 501c3 to be a church. You don't have to be incorporated with the state. You don't have to advertise. You don't have to have special events, et cetera, et cetera. That's all kind of like a step beyond the bare minimum. But you can go even beyond that and think about the furniture that you got to have in the building, the Wi-Fi that you have to have, all the amenities, the, the coffee bar, and all of those things, to have a nursery, to have on and on and on and on it goes, to have a TV and PowerPoint and everything. You don't have to have all those things to be a church. So I want us to start getting this right in our brains, what the Bible says a church is and what we might think a church is. A church can have all of this stuff, but if a church doesn't have the essentials, it's not a church. And there's a, a church that can have the essentials and none of the rest, and there's still a church. All right, so that's really important to have that in your mind. Let's go to Acts chapter 2 now and see what that early church was like. Acts chapter 2, we looked at this passage last week, verses 42 to 47. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. Who would read for us verses 42 to 47? Brandon, thank you. Okay, that's good. All right, so let's consider some things that are going on, especially in verse 42. You have this overview. They were doing four things. Ministry of the Word, you see that going on. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. And what do we do? We commit ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We turn to the book of Acts, which was written by Luke. Okay? And Luke was following along with the apostles and recording what they were saying. He likely wrote um, his gospel based on the uh, firsthand accounts from at least one of the disciples of Jesus. And so we commit ourselves to the apostles' teaching. When we turn to 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, we're going to the apostle Paul and his teaching. Fellowship, of course, is there too. As Connie mentioned earlier, very, very important. There's fellowship as the heart of what's going on when they gather together. Communion, which is described here as the breaking of bread. There, of course, was a full meal they would have together, and in that meal, a part of that was communion or observance of the Lord's table. And then prayer is the fourth thing listed. These four things described in verse 42 are very good to pay attention to and say, those are essentials. You got to have those essentials going on if you're a local church. Now, there are some things that are unique to that early church. If you look at verse 43, the verse right after that, you have this concept here where everyone is feeling a sense of awe, and tied to it, maybe not exclusively because of this, but definitely part of the reason why they were feeling a sense of awe, was because there were many wonders and signs taking place through the apostles. Now, we don't have the apostles here today to work wonders and signs among us. That would be pretty interesting. That would be a, an interesting selling point for us, wouldn't it, on Sunday morning, to have an apostle heal a whole bunch of people to touch a handkerchief, and that handkerchief goes off to heal somebody, like happens in the book of Acts, uh, to have all those miracles take place today, that would be very awesome, wouldn't it? Uh, however, even without the presence of the apostles doing those things before our eyes, there are definitely still people feeling a sense of awe in the gathering. I can't tell you how many testimonies I've heard of people just from this church who have said, I came here and just felt at peace. Or I came here and felt love, or, you know, fill in the blank. So there's still a feeling of awe that can happen even without the apostles doing the miracles right before us. Another interesting note that was for them in that day, verse 46, it says that day by day they were going into the temple. And that's because this church was located in what city? Where are we at in the book of Acts right now? What very prominent city? You can say it. You can do it. You can do it. Oh, thank you. I was about to <laughs> fall on the floor. Yes, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And what's the big building there that the Jews really cared about in Jerusalem? Well, of course, it was the temple, right? And who were all these believers? What kind of ethnicity were they? Well, they were Jews. 
their whole life. They had grown up Jewish, of course. They uh, circumcised the eighth day, paying attention to the law, not eating pork, you know, all these things, uh, observing the Sabbath on Saturday, on and on and on it goes. That was a part of their lives. And so what you see in the book of Acts is when they become Christians, there's still a lot of Jewish stuff going on, including this, going to the temple. But as the gospel spreads and the Gentiles start getting saved, and that happens mostly in chapter 10 and following, so we're not there yet in the narrative, you see a lot of that Jewish stuff falling away. Were were the uh, Corinthians or the Romans going to the temple day by day? Well, no, no, they weren't. Were they commissioned by Paul to build a temple? Were they commissioned by Paul to put themselves under the law of Moses? No. In fact, you have Paul teaching the opposite of that. We're not under law, but we're under grace. Okay? And so that's another unique aspect. I want to point out those two things. In verse 43, the apostles were working miracles. Verse 46, they were going to the temple. Those things were unique, but the rest carries on. The rest is normative for the Christian life. As John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew say, As illustrated by the Jerusalem church in Acts 2, God uses various means to bring blessing, strengthen faith, and cultivate spiritual growth in the lives of his people. John Frame says, They shared their hearts, they shared their souls, and they shared their property. That is a kind of fellowship that we rarely see in the church today, but it is simply an expression of the love Jesus taught us. He told us to love one another as he loved us. That means being ready to lay down your life for another Christian. That's clearly what we see here, isn't it? And it continues on in Acts chapter 4. You see some of the same stuff toward the end of Acts 4. Um, Verse 32 is kind of where it begins. The heading in my Bible says, sharing among believers. And it starts by saying that the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That's sweet, isn't it? One heart, one soul. And shouldn't that be the goal for every local church? Shouldn't that be the goal as we gather together to be of one heart, to be of one soul, to be of one mind? And from there, this is how it plays out. It's still verse 32 of Acts 4. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. That seems so radical today, doesn't it? That seems so extreme. Like, well, no, that's my truck. No, that's my house. No, that's my stuff. You stepped on my shoes, you know, whatever the case may be. To them, they were of one heart, one soul, one mind. They didn't consider anything as their own, but it was common to all. And of course, at that time, there was a deep need for that, okay? Different than America today. But we can still be of one heart, one soul, and have all things in common and be willing to share and be willing to lay down our lives and all that stuff, can't we? Go. They have it where? Yeah, I don't know. I would have to look that up. Yeah, quite possibly. And, and of course, there are monasteries that exist and things of that nature uh, where people go and they live up in the mountains and they forsake all their belongings and anything that they have there together is just common property. There's that kind of stuff that goes on. There are Christian movements that try to replicate Acts 2 and Acts 4 like to a T, and say, let's all sell all of our stuff and go live in a commune together. I would advise against that, okay? Um, But there are some who try to do that kind of thing. And so, um, yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised if there are Jews who did it still today or or whoever, because it's, it's, yeah, it, it can be common in certain religious circles to try to seek for a rigid replication of that. Other thoughts or questions on All right, well, let's talk about fellowship, okay? That was one of the elements there that we saw in Acts 2, was fellowship. And what we're going to do is walk through those seven marks of a genuine local church that I gave you, starting this week and perhaps ending next week. But today we're going to focus on fellowship. In the context of a church, fellowship, the Greek word is koinonia, is always in reference to God's people, the elect. In the context of church, fellowship is always in reference to God's people. And this is very important. I'll explain why here in just a moment. But the word for fellowship is koinonia, koin with a, with a K. Does that sound familiar? 
Yeah, it's the room you're in right now, right? The coin with the K. That's where we got that. We're not just really bad at spelling. We uh, got it from the Greek, koinonia. And again, in, in the Bible, it's always in reference to God's people. And this is a very, very important point. If the gathering of believers is a vital mark of the church, that means that a gathering of unregenerate people cannot rightly be considered a church, or be rightly considered a church, however we want to say that. So if you have a bunch of people together who reject the gospel of grace alone by faith alone, you have a a group of people that reject that, and yet they get together, are they a true church? What if they call themselves Christians? Does that matter? If they still reject salvation by grace through faith, but they call themselves Christians, is that a church? Oh, okay. okay. What if they have a cross out, outside of their building? Does that matter? What if they have programs for kids called like Christ's Kids or something like that? That's really like, woo, we are all about Jesus. Or if they put Jesus, uh, some like replication of what he may have looked like. What if they put that on their logo? Does that matter? Oh, okay. Wow. You guys are harsh. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. Joe. Yeah, it would be blasphemy. That would actually be bearing the Lord's name in vain, wouldn't it? Putting God's name on something that he disapproves of. So you can have a lot of people out there who call themselves this or that or the other thing, but what we're concerned about is what does the Bible say? What does Scripture teach? That's where all the authority is. So let's go to 2 Corinthians now. Turn forward in the New Testament, past Romans You'll, if you're in the book of Acts, go past Romans, past 1 Corinthians. Right after 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians, chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 11 through 18. Very, very important passage as it pertains to this subject of a fellowship of believers. 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, 11 to 18. Who would read that for us? 11 to 18. Stanley, thank you. Well, (laughs) idols. Though idiots might work, idols. (laughs) Yep. And 18? Verse 18? That's okay. That's all right. Yeah, and then that last verse, I think, is is critical, too, talking about our relationship to God. It's a family relationship. We are to be loyal to our Father as we are His sons and daughters. So this passage is used a lot to talk about um, being unequally yoked in our relationships. Christians are not to be unequally yoked with non-Christians in marriage, for example. That's a key place where this is applied. In premarital Uh, conversations before a couple gets married, it needs to be discussed, are you both Christians or are you both non-Christians? Because you're unequally yoked if one's a Christian and one's not a Christian. That won't work. It just will not work, okay? And there are lots of reasons for that that I could walk through at some point. Um, But the immediate context of this is not marriage, but the local church. The immediate context of 2 Corinthians 6 is the church, And notice what it says at the end of verse 15, the second half of verse 15. What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And what did we just read about in the early church? They had all things in common. They were of one heart, of one soul. They had one mind. They shared all things. They had all things in common. And the question that Paul here is raising is, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And that's a vital question to ask. What kind of separation is the Holy Spirit advocating here. Think of specifically verse 17 as this Old Testament passage is applied to the church. Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. What is the application for us today based on Paul's instruction here in this passage? Does he mean shun all non-Christians? No. We're supposed to have gospel conversations with them and show them the love of Christ, right? So you can't do that if you shun them. So what's he talking about? 
Okay, so there are those relationship aspects that we need to deeply consider. Yeah, what are our values? What are, what's our value alignment? Uh, yeah, good. What else? Was Corinth known as a uh, strong Christian city? What kind of city were they? Yeah, party city, right. Um, they were pagans, weren't they? And they were very religious because they had lots of temples. And they had temples to their idols. That's that what we were reading about there in verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? <laughs> All right. So were the Corinthians supposed to just keep doing what they had been doing before they were Christians and going to religious services and worshiping idols with the other pagans? Okay, okay. So, yeah, it's in our personal relationships with all kinds of things in life, but in particular, our religious affiliations and the things that we engage in in the name of worship. We are not to go be joined with idols. And as a cross-reference, let's go back to 1 Corinthians, so the book right before this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is a, a really helpful verse to think about. We'll, mm, we'll start in verse 17, but verse 20 is really what I want us to focus on. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, it says, Since there is one bread, talking about the communion bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So consider Paul's vision of this. This is the same city, same church. Same context here. He's saying when you go and you engage in a pagan ritual and they are having their sacrifices to their idols or they're doing whatever they're doing in the name of religious service in the name of an idol, well, the idol isn't really anything. You know, they carve a little, like a little wooden thing and they, they put them on the table and he can't do anything. He's got a nose, but he can't smell. He's got a mouth, but he can't speak. He's got ears, but he can't hear. That's Psalm 115. He's nothing. But there's some sort of power still in the room, and that power is demonic. That's what Paul's saying. There's demon power in the room. And the idol isn't anything, but that idol is a representation of the demons that are at work. And the apostle says, I don't want you to become sharers in demons. And it's that same kind of thinking that's driving what he's saying in 2 Corinthians 6 when he's saying, what do we have in common there? What, what, what is there in common between the table of the Lord and the table of demons? What is the temple of the living God in common with idols, the temple of idols? Come out from their midst and be separate. So the fellowship of a local church is to be as pure as possible. Not that we check everyone at the door. You know this. You guys have all been attending here sometime. We don't check you at the door and say, you know, tell me this, 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 and before you can come in. That's not what we're talking about. But what we're saying is we're going to be on guard for any kind of false teaching. We're going to be on guard for any kind of influence that would take us away from the Bible. We're going to advise the people of this church not to go out and be sharers in demons. Okay? We're going to be cautious about all of those things. And there are a couple passages, a couple more that you can cross-reference. You just jot those down and consider uh, those passages as well. The uh, Deuteronomy 22.10 verse is the law of Moses saying, do not yoke an oxen and, uh, or an ox and a donkey together. And that's the idea of being unequally yoked. Okay? An ox and a donkey don't exactly do well when they try to be a team. And it's the same with believers and unbelievers. And 1 Corinthians 5 is another helpful cross-reference. So with all that in mind, let me ask you this and see what you're thinking. In what ways do some churches today compromise on this issue when it comes to caring about the purity or the rightness of the fellowship. What are some ways that churches might compromise on this? Yeah. Okay. What about Christmas? Okay. So perhaps a focus that leaves Jesus out of it, right? 
which is quite ironic since it's Christmas, right? Um, now, there are decorations that you can have. We have decorations in our building when it, when it comes to Christmas time and all that stuff. But I remember um, a few years ago, and I think maybe I've shared this with you before, Melissa and I were watching a, a promo video for a big church's Christmas celebration. They were doing like six services that weekend, uh, Saturday and Sunday, and they had stuff for kids and everything else. And uh, this promo video was like a minute or a little more. And they, of course, have Santa Claus. Come get your picture taken with Santa Claus. And the Grinch will be there, and Elsa from Frozen will be there. And um, they were showing their Christmas tree uh, enchanted forest thing that you go through, and da 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 Not one mention of Jesus. <laughs> we were watching that and just thinking, what? What are we celebrating? What are we doing? I mean, I, I wasn't able to go, so benefit of the doubt, whatever. I just know what they were advertising. And they weren't advertising Jesus. And you know what? They got him. That's kind of what happens. Okay? And there are a reason why sometimes the um, most biblically faithful churches struggle to grow. There's a reason why. Because there's a world of entertainment out there. There's a world of all kinds of stuff. There's a world of compromise out there. And certain fellowships that aren't willing to compromise tend to run into growth struggles from time to time. John MacArthur in his New Testament commentary says, Believers and unbelievers are two different breeds and cannot work together in the spiritual realm. To infiltrate churches under the guise of tolerance and cooperation is one of Satan's most cunning ploys. He does not want to fight the church as much as join it. When When he comes against the church, it grows stronger. When he joins with the church, it grows weaker. And so, though the numbers might be inflated, how's their stance for the gospel? How's their fight against sin? How's their honoring of God? All of that gets weaker and weaker and weaker. When Satan comes against the church, we get stronger. And that doesn't necessarily mean numbers. That doesn't mean budget. What does that mean? Your faith gets stronger. Our fellowship gets stronger because we sense our need for one another. Your prayer life gets stronger because there are some demons that can only be driven out by prayer and fasting, Jesus said. So when you come against those kinds of things, the things that matter, you get stronger in. And so this compromise issue is very, very important. Understanding the principle of fellowship instructs your thinking as it pertains to the seeker-sensitive movement. That's the blank that you have on your sheet, the seeker-sensitive movement. Though it's not really called that anymore. That was the term it was given a number of years ago, which was the idea that churches should be seeker-sensitive seeker-friendly, those who are not Christians but are on you know, a religious journey, those who are, who are um, wanting to uh, you know, explore and taste and dabble in all that stuff, churches should be designed for them. Now, the problem with that, I, I don't have a you know, problem with that completely. There should be room and space for all that. But the problem with that is that the Bible doesn't talk about the church that way. The Bible talks about the church as being not only for believers, but made up of believers. What is the church if you take out the believers? Nothing. There is no church. Okay, And so um, the church, as the Bible describes it, is made of believers and it's for believers. Now, of course, you'll have people who come in who are questioning, who are uh, you know, exploring, they're on a journey, whatever the, the terminology there wants to be. And we should love on them and care for them and seek to answer their questions and be patient with them and show them the love of the Lord and all of that. But what do we design our church services for? Not for those people, but for believers, for the building up of the saints. That's what Scripture tells us. Okay? If fellowship isn't understood as the gathering of God's people only, then unbelievers can be considered body members. And what happens when you start having unbelievers in church membership? Tell me, what are some things that could happen? Yeah. If we really understand this, that believers and unbelievers, it's an unequal yoke. If we say, no, we can be equally yoked and there can be membership between believers and unbelievers, let's put them on a board, let's put them on a committee, let's give them positions of leadership. How's that going to turn out? That's it. It won't work. It cannot work. Okay? It just simply cannot work. Again, that doesn't mean we seek to kick anybody out. We're talking about membership of a church recognizing who is a believer and who is not as far as their profession goes and what constitutes true biblical fellowship. This issue is revealed 
in how churches structure their services. If the church is for unbelievers, we should be as pragmatic as possible to get all in. And that's what you see with like the churches that do the uh, come see the Disney characters for Christmas stuff. Okay? They're going to be as pragmatic as possible to get unbelievers in. Because in their mind, that's what church is for. If we don't think that way, how are we going to structure our Christmas service? What's our Christmas Eve service going to be like? All those kinds of things. It's going to look very different, isn't it? If we make a promo video, it's not going to include the Grinch. <laughs> okay? We would be really bad if we tried anyway. We would be really, really bad at that kind of thing, even if we uh, tried to do it. Um, maybe we could uh, convince you know, one of you to dress up like the Grinch this coming Christmas. That would be kind of fun. Uh, no, it wouldn't. That would be bad. We're not going to try to do that. Okay? But it, it is going to affect. You'll, you'll go to some churches, on, you'll visit on a Sunday, and very clearly they're not aiming to uphold the basic principles that we see in the book of Acts, for example. But instead, there's a lot of entertainment, and there's a lot of compromise on biblical principles. And the problem with that is those who are true believers in that church aren't going to grow there. They're going to be spiritually malnourished. They're not going to have the food of the word of God given to them. They're not going to have their vegetables. Everything is cake, 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 cake. How long will you survive on cake? Maybe for a while, but it won't be a very pleasant life. Okay. So you have to have the basics that God gives us. A couple more notes on fellowship. If fellowship is understood biblically, we should not buy whatever pragmatic strategy that's on sale this week. And there's always pragmatic strategies about how to get people in. And I've got a, a note here to read from this book, which I don't have with me. I think it's in my basement somewhere. But if you guys know um, Rick Warren, the name Rick Warren, and Saddleback Church, his church in California, they were the biggest church in America, I think, for quite some time. He's the guy that wrote uh, The Purpose Driven Life. And so he wrote a book called Purpose Driven Church, which was about how their church started and how a church should be uh, focused on going about their business. And there's some good stuff in there. And I think in Rick Warren's ministry and history, there have been good things. Um, definitely now, the bad things have overshadowed the good things. But in, in his history, there were some good things. But if I were to read to you that section, I'll just give you a nutshell version. The way that that church started was Rick Warren went door to door in Southern California. And he asked people as he went door to door, what would you want in a church? And he started taking this little survey and coming up with all kinds of answers. And at the end, kind of synthesized all of that. And here are the things that were most important to them. And those are the things they did. Is that a good way to start a, a biblical church? <laughs> no. What, what should you survey in order to find out what you should do as a church? The Word of God. The pages of Scripture, right? Joe. Yeah. So prag pragmatism is the uh, notion that the ends will justify the means. It's very, so pragmatic thinking is, um, you know, it, it don't really get caught up on is it fundamentally right or wrong, but let's just focus on what works. What works. So if the um, ends, ends justify the means, if the ends is getting people in the building, which, you know, some people uphold as like the number one goal for all churches, then use whatever means possible because the ends justify the means. And there are all kinds of strategies that are sold out there about how you can do that in today's age. And uh, we're just not going to buy everything. There's stuff we can learn always. And there are ways that we can reach our particular culture that will be different, and we should consider those things. But fundamentally, we're going to focus on what's on our sheet here, as the Bible describes the qualities of a local church? Good question. Any other thoughts or questions on any of this? Okay. All right, well, let's, um, I guess I, I'm not done talking about fellowship. Within the context of biblical fellowship, genuine worship takes place. This is not only song time, but prayer, discipleship, counseling, giving, discipline, preaching, etc., Biblical local church fellowship is the soil God places us in to grow. Just absolutely true. Um, Rex, how mature of a Christian would you be if uh, when you made your profession of faith in 2006, your church was just you camping on the weekends out in the woods? How mature would you be today? <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, you wouldn't even consider other people. If you're not around other people, you're not considering them. And you're not being selfless. And what's the heart of Christ-like love? Selflessness right? And consider how blessed our church is by Rex and Ellie. 
how faithful they are and how selfless they are. And any of God's people can serve in those ways. Any of God's people can do that. It just depends on where your priorities are and if you're paying attention to Scripture or not. That's, that's the watershed. Okay, well, let's start talking about ordinances, maybe finish it. I did not review this part this morning. I thought we were going to be done by now. So I'm going to be surprised along with you with my PowerPoint. I made this a year or more ago, more than a year ago. All right, <clears throat> there are two ordinances that the Lord set up during his earthly ministry that Christians should observe. Two ordinances. The Lord's table, communion, and believer's baptism are facilitated through the local church. Baptism happens once post-salvation, and communion is continual through life. Okay. And today, we will be uh, participating in one of those, believer's baptism, which uh, will take place today after the service for a couple of people, which will be great. Uh, the Lord's Table, communion, that's something that we do uh, right now once a month. Um, the early church likely was doing it every week when they gathered. Um, it, it's continual. No matter how often you do it, it is a continual thing. Believer's baptism, the goal is for that to happen once post-salvation. Okay? So any immediate thoughts or questions here before we get into those things? I don't want to be getting ahead of your thinking too much. Okay. Let's go to Matthew 28, 19 through 20. The very end of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. The last verses of that first New Testament book. Matthew 28. I think we'll start at verse 16 because I've always found verse 16 to be very interesting. Or 17, rather. Matthew 28, let's do 16 to 20. Who would read those for us, those five verses? 16 to 20. Mike, thank you. All right. So verse 17 there, that's the one that's always blown me away. They are with the resurrected Christ, and some were still doubtful. And this is of the 11. Verse 16 says it was the 11 disciples. So Judas is gone. We're not talking about Judas. <laughs> I mean, how bizarre is that? That just shows how prone to wander we really are, doesn't it? There they were with the resurrected Jesus, and some were doubtful. All right, but let's focus on, if you have the red letter Bible, let's focus on the red letters here, where Jesus says these things to them. After declaring that all authority has been given to him, he says they are to make disciples through two things. What are the two things? Good. Very good. So there are two ways that we make disciples. There's baptism, and it is believer's baptism, those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ for salvation, and teaching. And of course, Jesus taught them to do this in remembrance of me when it comes to communion, didn't he? That was one of his instructions, as well as some other things. So, um, really basic softball question here. Why should a person get baptized? Okay, so you're obeying Jesus. And who obeys Jesus but his disciples, right? If you're a disciple of Jesus, meaning you recognize him as your capital T teacher, you are a follower of Jesus, you've uh, are learning from Jesus, well, you're showing that you are with him in baptism. That's what believer's baptism is all about, is a symbol of that. And it is a matter of obedience because the Lord commanded it. It can be considered the first step in following Christ for all who have been born again. And that order is very important. It's for believers. And when you believe, you are born again. We spent a lot of time on this when we were in the salvation section. If you have believed in the gospel, that is by grace through faith alone, you have been born again. And what could be considered your first step as a Christian? Obeying the Lord in believer's baptism, seeking to be baptized, to be identified with him in the waters of baptism. Wayne Grudem says, baptism is not necessary for salvation, but it is necessary if we are to be obedient to Christ, for he commanded baptism for all who believe in him. Okay, so baptism is essential. It's a command given to us by the Lord Jesus 
as we identify with him publicly. And that's what two people are going to do today after the services. We uh, have to go to the pool today. We can't use the, the trough. We're going to go to the, the Payson Hotel pool. And two people, as we go down in the waters, will declare their belief in Jesus Christ, that they are disciples of Christ, and they'll be baptized in those waters. And we're going to clap and sing a song, and we're going to encourage them to keep growing in the Lord. Okay, Go. That's a tough one. Um, I would say no. I would say it could be a fellowship, because you can have fellowship without it being church, right? Um, But you can't have church without fellowship. So it's a fellowship of perhaps true believers, but boy, they're just directly defying a simple command of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Salvation Army is in mind, I'm sure, that Salvation Army has replaced baptism with the flag waving that they do. They've got a flag with a, a symbol that represents the Trinity, and they wave the flag over a believer as a replacement for water baptism. Yeah, well... It, and maybe they've stopped doing it now. But either way, they don't do water baptism anymore. Um, and yeah, that's a direct, that's direct disobedience is what that is. And it's not just them. There are other groups out there too. They're small groups, but they exist, who will, uh, who will say that baptism was just for um, the Christians leading up to the time of the Apostle Paul. And then when the Apostle Paul started taking the gospel around the world, baptism was not something that, uh, he commanded that people do, which is just not true. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions? We've got a couple minutes here. Good, good, good. Okay, you guys weren't super chatty today. Different kind of vibe in the room today. I hope that everyone's doing okay and that you asked any questions that you had. I don't want to leave you without questions. So Melissa was in here ruining the, the mood of the room. Uh, <laughs> back there, so disruptive. Okay. All right, you guys. Well, how about I pray for us again, and then we'll go on to the next thing. And uh, really consider, as you go into this next service, the marks of a true church that God has given us in his word, and think about how we're doing those and how we could even do those better. Because that's what's most important, isn't it? It's what the Bible gives us. The, uh, the TV screens, my guitar playing, uh, any of those other things, they could all fail us, and we would be no worse off as long as we have what Scripture's given us, prayer, fellowship, breaking of bread, uh, commitment to the Word, all of those things, okay? Let's pray. God, we, again, thank you so much for this day that you've made and for all the ways that you care for us. We ask that you would bless this fellowship today as we continue to grow in the knowledge of you, seeking to bear fruit in every good work that you've ordained for us. God, have us to serve you well and to truly grow in faith and in love for one another. We want to honor you today from the heart, and we ask your blessing on this in Jesus' name.